Today I want to talk about the problem of pride. I found a quote by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. I think that's really profound. Lewis understood something about pride, and that is that pride is, is gazing inappropriately in one direction. But there's another side to it, which is we have taken our eyes off of something else. It has two directions. We are devaluing or demeaning something else by focusing over intently or with the wrong heart on something else. That's what pride is. And today we're going to look at an example of devastating pride in the book of Numbers. Go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 16. We're going to be in Numbers 16, 17, and 18. We're going to spend the bulk of the time in 16. We'll briefly touch on the other two chapters as well. We are in a sermon series called Are We There Yet? on the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is about the traveling of the Israelites. Maybe I should say that differently the leading of God, of the Israelites. As they leave Mount Sinai, they've been brought out of Egypt, they've been saved through the Red Sea, they're brought to Mount Sinai, God gives the law, sets up the tabernacle, and then the book of Numbers begins just as they're about to begin their travel or their journey to the promised land. And everything seems like it's going great, but along the way, everything begins to fall apart. People fail in their trust of God, they fail in their obedience of God, they turn against their leaders, they turn against God over and over. And the immediate context of the passage today is of utmost importance. Back in chapter 14, God brings the people to the very southern edge of the promised land. They're really close, they're about to go in, and they send in these spies to check out the land. And what happens when the spies come back is that they spread this lie that the land isn't good and there's no way we can take it. They're afraid. And the people grab onto this and and they rise up against Moses. They rise up against God. They start claiming that God brought them there to die, that Moses has failed in his leadership. And they turn against God and they turn against Moses and they begin to start a rebellion. And God comes in, he puts down the rebellion And he says, look, here's what would have happened. I would have brought you into this land. You would have been successful. You would have prospered. And he says, I will still carry out my promise. He will bring his people to the promised land. But in the meantime, for 40 years, they're going to wander in the wilderness while the generation that rebelled against God passes away. And then they'll be brought into the promised land. And that's really the heart of the book of Numbers. What happens during these 40 years before they finally get to go back to the promised land? But this rebellion, this turning away from God is is what happened very close to the events that we're going to look at this morning. So keep that in your mind that this has just happened. They rebelled against God and then a whole bunch of bad things started to happen because it really shows just how proud their hearts are because of the way they're going to treat God in this passage. Now, we need to look at the pride that shapes the rebellion of Numbers 16 and 17, 
and then how God gives grace in chapter 18, and eventually I want to look at how all of this points us ahead to Jesus Christ. Read with me Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. You can follow along. We're not going to read the whole text today. It's too long, but I do want to give you some snippets to understand what's going on. Korah, son of Ezah, the son of Korhath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. Now, I know you start tuning out when there's a bunch of names. A bunch of guys rose up against Moses. Okay, there's the key point. With them were 250 Israelite men well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? What's going on in this rebellion? Obviously, these guys are upset. Obviously, they're causing trouble. Obviously, there's another group that's rising up and kind of forming this rebellion. But we need to understand what's at the heart of this rebellion among the many other ones in the book of Numbers. Korah, this one of these three leaders, there's actually four. Own son of Peleth will not be mentioned again in the whole chapter. I hope that's because he wised up and, and stopped this. We, we're not really sure, but he's just not mentioned again. Dathan and Abiram, unfortunately, will be mentioned several times. But Korah is a Levite. Now, here's where we got to dig into the weeds a little bit because we need to understand who the Levites were. When you get to the New Testament, we often read the priests and the Levites. You'll see that throughout the Old Testament, too. The priests and the Levites. And it's like, oh, they were just, you know, one big group. Kind of. So God, as he brought the people on the Exodus, and and we have the 12 tribes, and the Levites are one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but God set them apart to serve the tabernacle. So the Levites have a special role. And in the Levites, one family among the Levites became the priests. This was Aaron and his offspring. The priests would serve in the tabernacle on a day-to-day basis. The high priest, one of the priests, would serve once a year in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They had to stay holy. They had to keep themselves from all impact of sin. They had to be able to serve in the presence of the Lord. The Levites' role, as given to them in Exodus and Numbers, is that they were basically the helpers to the priests. They would do various things uh, when, when the priests would pack up the items of the tabernacle. It was the Levites then that would come in and carry them away. So as they journeyed through the wilderness, the Levites are carrying all the stuff of the tabernacle. When they set up camp, the Levites would help. The priests had to be the one to unpack the items. But the, pre- the Levites would help, and then they would guard the tabernacle. Make sure nobody came into the tabernacle in a way they weren't supposed to or touch certain things that they weren't supposed to. So here's the complaint. At the heart of what's going on here for Korah, because there's actually two rebellions in one here, Korah, who is a Levite, and his followers, they want to be just like the priests. They don't understand why they as Levites can't serve in the same way that the priests are serving. But look at the complaint that they bring. We'll deal with the other two in a moment. They say in verse 3 to Moses, you've gone too far. Literally, it means, Moses, you've made too much of yourself. Moses, you've set yourself up as a leader. 
And this is all your fault. They want, or they say, the whole community is holy. We're all equal, they say. So why should Moses and Aaron be allowed to lead? And notice already this rebellion has spread. 250 people of the community, not just 250 people, 250 other leaders in their community have joined in with this. The whole system of the priests and the Levites that helped them and served, and then the other 11 tribes, this whole system was set up by God. And it was set up by God because he is holy and his people are sinful. And he wanted a way for them to have a relationship with him. But it is a dangerous thing for sinful people to have a relationship with a holy God. And so God in his grace set up a system that made this possible. That's what they're rebelling against. And at the heart of their complaint is that Moses and Aaron are wrong for doing the role that God has called them to do. Moses and Aaron, they say, are wrong for doing the role that God has called them to do. They think that everybody should be able to lead in whatever way they want. Let's just do away with leaders. Now, notice the pride that's going on here. God brought them out of Egypt. They were hopelessly stuck and lost in Egypt. They did nothing to save themselves out of Egypt. God did it all miraculously, powerfully, he saved them out of Egypt. And he called them to be his people. And he gathered them together and he said, look, this is how it's going to work. And he called Moses, he called Aaron, he set up the priesthood, he set up the Levitical work that they had to do. He gave them this system to save them and to have a relationship with them. And they think here, and numerous times throughout the book of Numbers, They look at what God has done, and in their hearts, and sometimes out loud, they're saying, we know better. They're looking at God and saying, we have a better way. We could have done this better our own way. This is a heart of pride. They look at the leaders that God has given them, Moses and Aaron, not perfect people by any stretch, But they say that by doing what they were called by God to do, that they're wrong. That's pride. They know better than God what Moses and Aaron should do. They say that they know better what the Israelites should have done. That's pride because God is the one who is working. Ultimately, all of this is about a rebellion against God because of the pride that is in their heart. And I mentioned earlier that there were two parts to this rebellion. The one that is dealt with the most is Korah and his followers and this whole issue surrounding the priests and the Levites. But then you have Dathan and Abiram. They just want to get rid of Moses and Aaron. I think they just found the whole Korah situation convenient and they're kind of hopping on board to cause trouble. But God's going to deal with them in a moment. And so we come upon this scene of this battle that is set up for the priesthood. Who is God going to affirm as the priests? And so Moses, in verses 4 to 50, Moses tells Korah and his followers to get censers. 
This is not like sensors that bleep out bad words. These are sensors that are like a little bowl uh, made out of metal, and you would put coals in it and some some incense, some stuff that smelled good that when it burned. And then usually there was a top on it with some holes in it that would allow the smoke to come out. And sometimes it was on a handle or a chain that could be kind of wafted around. And this was used symbolically in the tabernacle by the priests. That's a key point. This was used in the tabernacle by the priests. And certain laws talked about how this was to happen. Throughout the Old Testament, this idea of the smoke rising up before God symbolized the prayers of the people in the presence of their Lord. But the most important fact here is that the censers were used by the priests. The priests, not the Levites, the priests. And so Moses tells these Levites who want to be priests, all right, you're going to get what you wanted. Y'all go and grab a censer and come before the Lord God Almighty. And let's just see what happens. Now, they should have known better. Right away, alarm bells should have been going off in their mind. Because within about a year prior to this, I'm not sure exactly the timing, but something happened around censers and incense. Moses, or I'm sorry, Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And they were serving as priests in the tabernacle as God commanded them. But they were kind of messing around. And they took their censers and they put some incense in them that was not what God had told them to do. He had given very strict instructions on how this was to work. They just did it their own way. No big deal. And they went into the tabernacle with this and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and struck them dead. Now, if I'm Korah and his followers and Moses says, hey, go grab a censer and appear before the Lord, I'd be like, whoa, no, no, no. I I know where this leads. They seem to think everything would be fine. And Moses cuts through to the heart of the matter here. Look at verses 6 through 11 says, you, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers tomorrow, put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of Israel of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work of at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them. He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? He says to Korah and his followers, Look at everything God has given you. If you remember the setup of of the camp of Israel, I know you all took vigorous notes on that, but, but you have the tabernacle in the middle, and around the tabernacle, the closest tribe to live to the tabernacle were the Levites. They were right there. God had them close. And then the other 11 tribes were scattered around. Moses says, why are you doing this? God's given you so much, and you're not satisfied with it. You want more. So Moses summons Korah and his followers to come with the censers and stand before the Lord. In verses 12 through 14, Dathan and Abiram won't come. 
here's where we see the split in their rebellion. They're like, yeah, we're, we don't have to do that. We got our own thing going on. We're not showing up. And look at what they say. Moses summons them to come. And look at verses 12 through 14. Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Oh, the proud arrogance of their words. Where does the term flowing with milk and honey come from? That's what the Lord God Almighty said about the promised land. He saves them out of Egypt where they are slaves and he promises to bring them to Israel, this land flowing with milk and honey. It's just this overabundance of produce in the land. And what do they say? They say, oh, it was, it was actually Egypt that was the land of milk and honey. We want to go back there. That's where we had it good. You hear this often in the book of Numbers. And who are they blaming for not being able to go into the promised land? Moses. It just happened that they rebelled against the Lord. They were ready to go in. They said no. God didn't say no. They said no. They rebelled against the Lord. And now they're blaming Moses for it. And they say that Moses is going to kill them in the wilderness. Why are they going through what they're going through? Because of their own rebellion. But their pride has blinded them to it. And then they say that Moses wants to lord it over them, act like a prince, even though God is the one that gave Moses that job. Moses didn't even want it, if you remember. God calls him and Moses is like, no, 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 send somebody else. But God chose to work through Moses. They also say that it's Moses' fault they haven't entered the promised land. It wasn't Moses's; it was theirs. And then he says, verse 14, in the NIV, I, I don't really like its translation here. It says, do you want to treat these men like slaves? The Hebrew there is literally, do you want to gouge out their eyes? And it was kind of a term like, we use the term today, pull the wool over someone's eyes. Hoodwinked. Do you know what hood, that's a, kind of an archaic term. Hoodwinked means like somebody who's going through the forest and a robber comes up and puts a bag over their head. You're deceiving them. You're leading them astray. He is blaming Moses and accusing him of deceiving the people and leading them astray. Today, in more modern times, I think we might use the word gaslight. You're you're intentionally trying to deceive people and lead them astray. But here's the thing. Who keeps rising up these groups among the Israelites? It's these rebels with a heart of pride that keep on gathering people around and going, do you know what Moses and Aaron are doing? Do you know why they're doing it? Can you believe it? They're so wrong. Here's the interesting thing. Oftentimes in rebellion, the people are actually revealing their own heart and their accusations against someone else. And we see that over and over again in the book of Numbers. The rest of the chapter then is about Korah, and his followers bringing their censers. Aaron, the high priest, brings his censer. They appear before the Lord. Let's pick it up in verse 19. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the, or to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. God shows up. This happens over and over again in the book of Numbers. The people rebel. God shows up. And understand the language. If I'm understanding this correct, what is being said here is that God is saying to Moses and Aaron, step away from all of the Israelites. I'm going to wipe them out. All of them. Because he says the whole assembly had gathered and he says, separate from the whole assembly. Now, be careful here. We face this numerous times in this book. God knows what he's going to do. This is not God losing his temper and Moses pouring a cup of cold water on him and calming God down. And God goes, ah, Moses, you're right. I'm wrong. I won't do that. God does what he does very intentionally because he is shaping his people. He is shaping Moses and he's shaping us as we read it to see what's going on here. And so God says he's going to wipe the people out. And who intercedes for the people? Moses and Aaron. Who were convinced or who had lies spread about them saying that they weren't serving the people, that they weren't doing what's best for the people? Moses and Aaron. So here the very people that are being blamed by the people step up to Save the people. And hopefully, if you know your Bible, you begin to hear echoes of Jesus Christ. The one who is rejected, who stands up to save. Because it all points to him. But we'll get to that in a second. Moses intercedes, and God says he will not wipe out the Israelites, but he is going to hold these three people and their families accountable. In verses 28 through 35, God brings judgment. Korah and these 250 people are standing before the tabernacle, standing there with their censers, waiting to see what would happen. And around them, in the background, in the camp of Israel, are their homes, their tents at this point, and their families. And the ground opens up and swallows their tents and all of their belongings and many of their family members because of what they had done. And they're still standing there before the Lord. And I just wonder in that moment if they realized just how wrong they were. That in their pride, they weren't rebelling against Moses. They weren't rebelling against Aaron. They were rebelling against the Lord God Almighty. And Moses had said to the people, if nothing happens here, Moses says, I'm wrong. But if something miraculous and unexplainable happens, then you will know that this is the Lord God Almighty. And that's exactly what happened. And then fire comes out from the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle and consumes these 250 men that are holding the incense. God made it clear He had given them the way to worship him. 
He had saved them. He had led them. They were not rebelling against Moses. They were rebelling against the Lord God Almighty. The next day, verse 41 says, the people again rose up and blame Moses. They say, Moses, you have killed the Lord's people Imagine that. Moses is standing near the tabernacle with these other guys. The ground opens up in the distance and the people are like, yeah, Moses, you did that. Fire comes out from the tabernacle. I would love to know how they thought Moses accomplished this. That's some pretty cool technique there. They blame Moses. Do you see the depths of pride? When confronted with obvious evidence that they are wrong, They refuse to submit. And again, the very next day, they rebel against Moses and Aaron. Again, God tells Moses to separate from them. But God, or Moses rather, does something amazing. Look at chapter 16, verse 46. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it. Remember this all surrounded incense and censers here. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer, put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar. And hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague. In addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting for the plague had stopped. Could you imagine being Moses in that moment? And the people are turning against you, wanting you dead, blaming you for everything that they've done wrong. And in that moment, he says, Aaron, we're going to save these people. And Aaron So they had said, Aaron, you don't deserve your job. We all should be able to do what you do. He says, I'm going to save these people. And they go to the altar. That's where the offering was sacrificed, where the animals were sacrificed on behalf of the people's sin. They go there and get coals from that and take that to the people. They are applying the Lord's salvation to the people who are turning against them. It's amazing to me how they're being accused of bad leadership. And yet what we see is that no matter the personal cost, they are willing to serve the people over and over again. And so Aaron walks through the people with these coals from the Lord's altar. And this plague that has begun to spread among them is stopped. I'll briefly, chapter 17, I don't want to spend too much time here. It's, it's pretty easy to sum up because there's still this lingering question, should Aaron be the high priest or maybe it should be somebody else? So Moses tells all of the Israelites, actually, I think it's God that tells them. Yeah, God says to Moses, speak to the Israelites. And then Moses tells them, they each bring one staff from each tribe. Aaron brings his staff. They put them in the tabernacle overnight. And in the morning... These walking sticks, I'm not a walking stick guy, but I've never seen this happen in my lifetime. Like they sprouted leaves, they sprouted flowers and, and 
produced almonds. Now, I want to be careful here because I kind of misspoke there. Aaron's staff sprouted leaves, sprouted flowers, and produced almonds. The other staffs were exactly, as you would imagine, just a bunch of sticks. Could you imagine, like, we see people with canes, like wooden canes, and sometimes they're fancy. Never would they just start sprouting. Walking sticks have been cut off from the source of life. This is an absolute miracle. And it is God's way, in his grace and mercy, of confirming, guys, I chose Aaron for this role. This was God's plan, not Aaron's and not Moses's. And so Aaron's staff is put in with the Ark of the Covenant as this ongoing, constant reminder to future generations. And then all of 18, I'm just going to sum up this way. God gives a whole bunch of rules and laws. And at the heart of these rules and laws are how the Levites are to be cared for. Let that sink in for a moment. The Levites just rebelled against God, rebelled against Moses, rebelled against Aaron, and God, right after this, gives a whole bunch of laws to say, I'm going to make sure that you guys are cared for. That's the grace of the God that we served. Now, what's the problem here with pride? Pride looks at what God has given and thinks we can do better. It thinks that we know better, that we should have more than what God has given us, that something should be different, and we are the ones to be able to figure out how it should be different. D.A. Carson uses the phrase, the de-godding of God. That's what pride ultimately is, the de-godding of God. It is an attitude and an action of I think God should get off his throne and I should sit on it and do things better. Pride rejects God's authority. God shows Moses and Aaron and the people are rejecting them. Now, please hear me, because, and I think this is an important side note. The Bible is very clear that Moses and Aaron are not perfect. They were not like God's chosen people, so they never did anything wrong. The Bible actually shows us things they did wrong. Remember the whole golden calf incident? Yeah, Aaron was a big part of that. Aaron and Miriam rose up against Moses in Numbers chapter 12. and Numbers 20 that's coming up, Moses acts out of pride. They are not perfect. I want to be careful in this passage and in this sermon to make sure. I'm not saying never hold leaders accountable. We can go to many other passages to talk about holding leaders accountable. But what I am saying and what I think we need to learn from this passage is we need to examine our own hearts. Is it pride that causes us to grumble and complain? Are we ultimately rebelling against God's plan? Because that's the other thing that pride does. Pride rebels against God and rejects his authority and it rejects God's plan. Moses and Aaron have been chosen by God to lead the people and to help them to worship the Lord and to lead them in the sacrificial system that paid for their sins. And they're rebelling against that. They're rejecting what God has given them. And that's another issue with pride. Pride can build up to the point where we reject God's way of salvation. God had given them this way to deal with their sins through Moses, ultimately through Aaron and the priests, and they are rejecting that. We become so blinded by our pride 
that we fail to see God's means of grace. And we think we know better. There is grace in this passage. Actually, it's not so much in the passage as it is in later chapters. But we do see it in chapter 18 where God does care for those who rebelled against him. He cares for the Levites by making sure they're going to be taken care of in the community. But also in 1 Chronicles, we are told of the descendants of Korah. Some of Korah's children did not participate in this rebellion. I don't know why. I don't know if they were old enough to know better, if they didn't get involved. But if you turn to Psalm 42 and Psalm 84, we are specifically told they are written by the sons of Korah. Now that means the descendants. I don't think they were literally the immediate sons of Korah. But Korah's family line went on. And they grew up and developed into people that served the Lord at the tabernacle. What an amazing act of God's grace. But the ultimate picture of grace that we have is Jesus Christ. That we who have rebelled against God, turned away from him, and deserve to be wiped out. Instead, God chooses to send his son to us in our rebellion. To save us and be our great high priest. Our sinful pride leads us to reject Christ's authority. To say we know better and we should be able to get our own way. Just like in Numbers chapter 16, we accuse often God of misusing authority. Well, how can he be so great if things are going wrong? How can he be so great if people are suffering? And we're seeing God through the lens of our pride. And just like in Numbers 16, we're so wrong in our understanding of the situation. Why are things so wrong in this world? It's because of our rebellion. God is the one working for salvation. God is the one with an eternal plan. God is the one with a way to be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. And our pride instead causes us to look at God and say, I know better. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Just like the priests of the Old Testament, in fact, way better than the priests of the Old Testament, we now have the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, way better than Moses, way better than Aaron. And we have the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who offers a way of salvation by giving his life for us on the cross. He, as a priest, not only offered the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews is putting all of this in the context of a warning. And he's referring back to Numbers and back to Exodus. And he's saying, remember what they did. Don't do that with Jesus Christ. 
And so I want to warn you today. Is it possible that your pride is blinding you to God's grace? We all need to search our hearts because our pride might be stealing from us, according to this passage, our confidence to stand before the Lord through Jesus Christ, the mercy and grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ. And he talks about our help in a time of need. Imagine losing all of that because of pride and saying, nope, I know better. Just like the people in the wilderness, we can look at God and think, I could do better. Maybe I should be in charge for a while. And then we move on to blame God for what is actually a result of our sin or the sins of those around us. We deceive ourselves over and over again so that we are no longer interpreting things according to God's glory and His plan. Pride deceives us into thinking that we could do better. And by doing so, it robs us of being able to see the mercy and grace that God gives us through Jesus Christ. This week is Thanksgiving. One of the great antidotes to pride is Thanksgiving. To remember what God has done. To intentionally rehearse what God has done. We're in a section in the Psalms where they're going over the Exodus and Numbers story. Over and over again, Psalm after Psalm, they're reminding themselves of what God has done. We need to remember So I pray, whether you come Wednesday night to the Thanksgiving Eve service or not, I pray that around your Thanksgiving tables, in your homes, even if it's just in the quietness of your own life, in your own moments, remind yourself of what God has done for you that you did not accomplish yourself. Remember the goodness of the Lord. Fight that pride that so easily wells up within us. And especially thank God for the salvation we have through Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, and and I pray there's some here today that are being challenged. Maybe in your own pride, you are holding on to your rightness. And you are constantly looking at God and saying, God's the one that's wrong. You are missing out on the mercy and grace that God so freely wants to offer to you. It's there. It's already been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Don't let your pride turn you away from Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while. We are still in danger of pride creeping in. We start thinking, well, I've done this. I've gotten to this part. And we fail to give God the glory for all he keeps on doing. We still need to give God thanks for the salvation he has given us over and over again. Let us pray. Father, it's hard to look in scripture at some of these stories. It's hard to see how awful some of these people were to the leaders you gave them and ultimately to you. And God, I think part of it, it, it's hard because it seems so foreign. It's hard because we want to say we would have done it different. But ultimately, I think it's hard because we see something of ourselves. And God, I praise you 
You are so good that to those of us, all of us, were in rebellion against you, thinking we know better, you sent your son Jesus Christ to come to us, to die for our sins. And God, I pray if there's anyone right now blinded by their own pride, may today be the day that the scales of our own self-deception fall off and we see Jesus clearly and we realize our need for him. And for each one here, may we understand we have a great high priest. He is serving on our behalf in your presence. And we have confidence to enter into your holy presence only because of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would submit to that. May our pride not get in the way and and whisper in our ear and say we could do it better. But may we be people who submit in gratitude for the mercy and grace that you have given to us through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.